Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, Crossroads. I'm Christy Ward. At Crossroads, we believe that the church is a family, and one of the greatest blessings of being part of the family of God is that although we're not together in person this morning, no amount of time or distance can separate us from the love of God or His presence. As we gather separately in our homes this morning, we are united in the body of Christ as we pray together, worship, and read God's Word. As we begin our time together, I'm going to read the scriptures that Charlie will be leading us through today. If you need to pause the video, go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in the book of John chapter 20. I'll be reading the ESV. John chapter 20, verses one through two and 10 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Welcome to another week of House Church Sundays. Last week was Easter and we got to celebrate in homes all over the Flow Mo area. It was really encouraging and really beautiful just to see all the texts and the pictures of our church family worshiping with their family from living rooms and lake houses all over the place. It was awesome how we got to celebrate Easter in different places. It reminds us and me that our God isn't dependent on a single place, but he's bigger than the churches that we build, and he's bigger than the people that we worship with because our God is the God of everything, and that's why he's worthy of worship. And last week was Easter, and we really focused on this idea of Jesus being the life because he calls himself the life. And in John 14, we looked at this phrase when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And when he calls himself the life in John 14, as we unpacked what he meant, we realize that he doesn't just mean life in terms of being present. He means something so much more. And we focus in on one verse in Matthew 2 where when Jesus died, this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the most holy place being where the presence of God manifested for the Jewish people, 
It was torn in half. And what happened was it symbolized that through Jesus, we all have access to the presence of God all the time. And so really, when Jesus talks about life, what he's talking about is a fuller life than just existence. When we define life, Jesus is saying that life is when existence meets purpose. And God would say our purpose, as our creator, our purpose is to live into or with his presence and to live out his presence among his people and his places. And so Jesus broadens and deepens this definition of life. He says that it is found in and through me because I allow you access to the presence of God, which is what you were created for. And so we pick up from there. We actually pick up this morning on Resurrection Sunday again. And we're going to look at, over the next six weeks, we're going to look at the reality of Jesus being alive. We're going to look at six times that Jesus appeared to his family and his followers and sometimes a large group of people. And we're going to see what the presence of God did in those moments. Literally, we're going to see how the presence of God brought to us through Jesus changed the present of the people he appeared to. And so there's an interesting pattern in all the New Testament appearances of Jesus post-resurrection before the ascension in Acts 2. There's a pattern where Jesus finds his people, and step one is the people are dealing with something. They're struggling with an emotion, or they're overwhelmed by something, but they find themselves struggling in a certain situation because Jesus isn't there anymore. And step two is is Jesus meets the people where they are at, because that's what God does with all of us. And as the presence of God is displayed in the people of God in those moments, what we see is their current condition and their situation changes. Because that's what the presence of God does in our world. And today, we meet Mary. We meet Mary Magdalene, who's dealing in John 20 with the loss of Jesus. But before we get into her story, if you're new to the Crossroads community, if you're watching us online for the first, second, or third time, if you've never been in this building on a Sunday morning, uh, we do one thing every Sunday. Uh, we, We pray, and we pray during the sermon. And so we're going to do that now, and and I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to give you some space to pray wherever you're at, with people or by yourself. And here's why we take some time to pray, because we really believe in a consumer culture, our job sometimes isn't to be critics all the time. That wherever you're at watching this message, wherever you're at opening your scriptures, we believe that God's presence is real and present in your space. And that because we open his scriptures, the Holy Spirit, God in his spirit is going to do something in your spirit. We believe that God works. And so we're going to take some time and I'm going to ask that you stop down before we get going. And I'm going to ask that you just pray. You pray this morning and ask that God might show you himself. You pray that God might shape you into the image of Jesus this morning as we read the scriptures together. So take a few seconds now and pray that God might do a work in your spirit this morning. All right, well, our text this morning is John 20, and you just heard it read, but let me read the first verse. It goes like this, now, very early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance. So a couple things right there. 
Uh, one, I don't know how familiar everybody is with the scriptures, but even if you're not that familiar or you're very familiar, uh, there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Like they, they seemingly are everywhere you look. And sometimes, and I do this for a living, and I paid a lot of money at a lot of schools to learn about this stuff. I get confused with all the Marys. Is this the mother of Jesus? Is this another Mary? Is this, I hear Mary Magdalene. It's actually really interesting. They have dug in that area in Palestine, the Middle East, and they've actually found and they have... Um, kind of said that that as they're finding different tombs and different documents with names on it, Mary was a really popular name. And they actually speculate that up to 25%, 25% of all females in the first and second century in Palestine were named Mary, right? So every child is special and unique, but a lot of them sounded the same in name. This is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is not the mother of Jesus. She's somebody that Jesus meant along the way. She's called Mary Magdalene because she's from the town of Magdala. It's a city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know what you know about Mary Magdalene. A lot of things are thrown out there. Uh, some people would say that Mary Magdalene is known for not being a, I don't know how you, wholesome kind of woman. Uh, and I would just say that that probably has no weight. And it probably isn't true. Because all we know from the scriptures about Mary Magdalene is what's found in Luke 8. And this is how Jesus came about in the life of Mary. It said, sometime afterward, Jesus went through to towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12, the disciples were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and disabilities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So we meet Mary as a follower of Jesus because Jesus set her free because Jesus delivered her, because Jesus took these evil spirits that had taken control of. And this is what we see in the New Testament, that when it says evil spirits took control of, it literally owned people's lives. They had no willpower to do what they wanted. They were forced to do what the spirits wanted them to do. It was an all-encapsulating kind of slavery to the spirits that owned them. And so when Jesus set Mary Magdalene free, you got to understand what that must have felt like and been like for her. And so this is what Mary did. She started following the God that set her free. Because <laughs> I'm sure she wanted it for days, months, years. And so Mary Magdalene, the one who had been delivered of evil spirits, started following Jesus, it says in the text of Luke. And also some women were following with them. And that's just a really important part to note here that is one of my favorite things in the text and about Jesus. In the first century, women were not viewed with respect. They were viewed as property. They were owned by their husbands. They couldn't even have the, the honesty and the dignity to give an account in court because they weren't seen as credible because they were women. And that is not how God designed them to be seen in his image. And so Jesus, and sometimes we skip over this, Jesus let women follow. Jesus let women sit at his feet in the position of a learner, a disciple. Jesus gave women privilege that only men had in the first century. And we skip over that. But if you would have lived then, it would have been a radically different approach to how you treat women, how you treat the equality of all people, because all people are made in the image of God. And here's why that matters. Because Mary was oppressed by these spirits, Jesus delivered and said, come and follow me. What Mary found in Jesus was a calling she couldn't get anywhere else. What Mary found in Jesus literally was this idea that he saw through who she was into, what she, into who she could be. It's a special moment. So when 
Mary grieves and we find her grieving at the tomb. She grieved because of who Jesus was to her, of what Jesus had planned for her, of all the hope that she found in Jesus based on where her life was, not just as a woman, but as somebody possessed by evil spirits. So when Jesus died, imagine what that meant for her, what that meant for how she saw herself, what that meant for all the promises that Jesus promised her about who she could be and who she was becoming. What are the promises of what better life looks like and what his kingdom would be like when he's in full control? She lost the person that knew her the most closely and loved her anyway and loved her in spite of all the evil and demonic activity. She lost the person who she loved the most. And so she grieves. I think we all get that. My grandfather was a pastor uh, of a Methodist church and a couple others in Farmtown, Iowa. And they were, my grandfather and my grandmother were married for 60 some odd years, I think, a long, 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 long time. And he passed away five or six years ago, um, might have been seven or eight now, but he passed away and, and my grandmother's still with us. But I remember every birthday that she has, <laughs> she'd tell us, this is the last one we're going to have to celebrate. And it's not that she wants to die. I think it's just that in some ways when she lost her husband, the person that knew her the most and loved her the most deeply, she doesn't really see life being the same anymore because she lost her love. So Mary is in this moment when she's grieving because I don't know if she wants to picture a world without Jesus in it. It's a really beautiful human emotion, a really beautiful human moment that she has. But that's not the only reason she's grieving. She's grieving because um, the depth of their relationship correlated to the depth of her grief. So it's total. Tim Keller says it like this. Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. And she thought she lost that. But it gets worse for her. So in verse 2, it says that she didn't find the body and she went running to Simon Peter and the other 12 whom Jesus loved and told them they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So when you and I read this, we think, cool, he rose from the dead. Like you should be happy, not sad. But in the first century, Mary is overcome and overwhelmed by grief. She's not yet a believer in the resurrection. She thinks her God died. She thinks her God died, and then on top of that, she can't even grieve him properly. In the first century, in the Jewish context, death and burial was a sign of dignity. They didn't cremate bodies. It actually has a couple places in the Old Testament scriptures where it says, if you die, you're buried that same day. You treat the body properly. You wrap it in linens and you anoint it with oil to stop the smell. You give even the deceased dignity of life. And so what would happen is you'd wrap the body and then you'd go and anoint it with oil. And the Sabbath happened, so they couldn't fully anoint it. That's why she goes there at the first of the morning so she can be there to treat Jesus' body, whom she loved, with dignity. And it wasn't there. And in the Jewish context, you'd mourn for seven days with friends, family, and community. Then after that seven days, they would stop and you'd keep mourning, especially if you lost a parent or a child. And you'd keep mourning for up to a year. And then at the end of the year, actually, you'd go back into the tomb and you'd gather the bones that were left and put them in a wooden box called an ossuary um, where they could be with their family. Grief took a long time. It was a long process. What Mary's being robbed of that adds the depth of her grief is not only the Lord that she lost, but she's not even allowed to mourn him properly. And that just adds wave upon wave of grief. And I think there's a correlation now to what we see in our world. I know people that have lost loved ones in the current climate that can't have funerals. 
that can't hug them one more time, that can't see their bodies, that can't. I think we are living in a world where we're not allowed to properly mourn, and when you can't properly mourn, it makes us even more full of grief. It adds to this feeling we're having that things aren't right. It adds to the power that grief has over us. So that's why Mary's sad. That's why she's grieving. John Steinbeck, in his book, The Winner of Our Discontent, had this quote, and I love it. And it kind of, for me, encapsulates Mary's um, response. He says, it's so much darker when a light goes out than what it would have been if it, if, it had, if it had never been shown. She thought the light of Jesus went out, and she knew life before it, and she knew life after it was never going to be the same, and then she couldn't even mourn his death in the way that you're supposed to. She couldn't give him dignity. And so what that did, what grief does, the power grief has over us is it, it changes, it limits, it shortens our perspective. If you go to verse 10, it picks up the narrative, the story of Mary, and it says, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she bent down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels sitting in white where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and one at the feet. So here's the deal. Here's how I know that, that grief drastically or dramatically changes your perspective is because Mary looked in the tomb, overwhelmed with grief, sees two angels. Angels. It wasn't two people. It wasn't two guards. It wasn't two soldiers. It wasn't two of the disciples. She sees two angels. And we know from the other gospels that these angels looked like angels, you know? I don't know if you ever saw Touched by an Angel growing up. Man, my family loved that show. But for most of the show, they were just normal people looking angels, and then you couldn't tell. And then at the end, the big reveal was like this one spotlight, and then all of a sudden people were like, that's an angel. These are the angel moments of that show. It says in Luke 24 that they were dazzling white. It says that when you looked at them, you knew they were angels. And here's how I know. Here's how I know that Mary was so overwhelmed with grief, it changes her perspective. Is because she looks at angels, and it doesn't move the needle at all. She doesn't say something else is going on. She's not taken aback by their dazzling white robes. She just keeps on weeping like nothing had changed. And in everywhere else in the New Testament, then in the Old Testament, when you see angels, people stop down and ask some questions. Instead, she didn't ask any kind of questions. They had to ask her a question. They said in verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? That kind of question does not help her grief. She's overcome. They're sitting in a tomb, in a tomb that's no longer with a body. They knew exactly why she was weeping. They knew exactly why she was crying. It's kind of like, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who had a bout with cancer a couple years ago. And he said, you know, if I could give anybody one piece of advice when people are grieving, whether it's you're diagnosed with cancer or you lost a loved one or you've lost a job or um, don't ask them the question, how are you doing? <laughs> you know how they're doing. And this is kind of like that moment when it just pours salt in the wound. It exacerbates the emotions and makes things worse. They look at Mary and say, why are you crying? And Mary replied, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they put him. She continues and says, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And this is the, the craziest part of the story to me. 
She saw Jesus standing there, the one she'd been looking for, the one she's weeping over. But grief had so changed and challenged her perspective that she totally didn't even see what she was crying about. It says that she saw Jesus standing there, whom she followed for years, whom she helped in ministry, whom she put her hopes in. She saw Jesus standing there in verse 14, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Grief changes our perspective and oftentimes limits what we're able to see. And she looks at Jesus and says, Sir, she thought he was the gardener, and says, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him. So a couple things there. One, I think it's really interesting she thought that Jesus was the gardener. She clearly is missing the big point here. And then two, I think you can see how her grief has not only changed her perspective, but stripped her of reason. Because if you think about it on a practical level, this is a woman in the first century, and she says to this gardener, who, she, who is actually Jesus, tell me where his body is. I'll go get it. And she had no thought next to, well, what do I do? What if it's a mile away? I'm just going to like drag this body for a mile, and nobody's going to ask me questions about what are you doing? And this looks weird. Nonetheless, have you ever tried to pick up dead weight? It is very difficult. She doesn't care because she's not thinking straight or seeing clearly because she's so overwhelmed with grief. Her perspective, has, her perspective has completely shifted. All she sees is her pain. That's what grief does. That's what we focus on. And I couldn't think of better examples than what we're going through now. I had a friend of mine the other day post about kind of how it suddenly hit them, what was happening in the current context. You know, you ride in social distancing for a while and you live in quarantine and good days and bad days. And then some days you wake up and you realize all that you're missing and all you see is the pain around you. The birthday parties and the graduations. How hard is that? Graduation is a moment we celebrate culturally. And this year it's going to be way different. And we mourn the loss of the celebrations we used to have. Some people have lost loved ones. Others have lost jobs. We mourn those losses. And in those moments, so it's so difficult. It's so difficult. It's so difficult to find perspective outside of our pain. And Mary's the same way. And so Jesus responds to Mary saying that he's the gardener. <laughs> Instead of being insulted, he looks at her and says in verse 15, Who are you looking for? I love that question. I love that question for a couple reasons. One, I don't think he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. I think what he's doing subtly and maybe even more than subtly, pronouncedly, I think he's absolutely challenging what she believed about him. I think he's saying to Mary, what kind of Messiah did you follow? What kind of Lord do you think was in this tomb? I think he is challenging her perceptions. He's breaking down her perceptions of who he is. He's breaking down her perceptions of the limited God that her pain had caused to come about. I think he's saying, who do you think you follow? And so when he says, who are you looking for? He follows it with one word. He follows it by saying, after she rebuts, he follows it by saying, Mary. One simple word. He calls her by name, and that changes everything. It's another sermon series, The Power That's in a Name, but it's monumentally powerful. Names show ownership, and names show identity in the first century world. Names show purpose. Names show value. 
Over and over again, Jesus is called the good shepherd. In John 10, 3, it says that he calls his own sheep, the people he cared for. He calls them out by name and leads them places. Calling somebody by their name is intimate and it's good. And in a moment, Mary heard her name called by Jesus, her teacher, and remembers exactly the things that she'd hoped for, that she'd believed in. I think in this one word, what we see is that her perceptions radically shift from what was limited by the pain of her grief to what's possible through Jesus that wasn't defined by death. One commentator said, Tasker said, never was there a one-word utterance more charged with emotion than this one. And in one single moment, all of the pain of her grief turned into joy. And in verse 16, she turned to Jesus and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, or Rabbi, which means teacher. Again, the very thing she followed in the first place, that Jesus can be her teacher and she can be a disciple. The hope that he instilled in her, she finds, again, the presence of God in that moment turned her joy, I mean, turned her, her grief into joy. It's what Jesus does. It's what Jesus has always done. It's what Jesus came to do, was to turn the grief of the pain that we find in the world into joy because he's bigger and better than our pain. He came to fix it. One of my favorite stories that I bring up often at Crossroads is the moment that Jesus kind of declared his ministry, if you will. So he flew under the radar for 30 years. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. Good son, good carpenter. I'm sure he's the bestest of best friends, but he didn't do any ministry. And at 30, he decided to step up and say, my time is now. And one of the key moments, and you can find it in um, Luke 4, he walks into the temple, into the place where people teach about God, and they tell him, pick an Old Testament verse and read it out of Isaiah. And he reads in verse, in chapter 61, and he says, he came to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And that's exactly what Jesus' presence did in the life of Mary. Dr. Constable says it like this, Mary swung from the depths of despair emotionally to the height of joy in one brief second. This is one of the greatest recognition scenes in literature. Literally, Jesus took Mary from a place of grief and pain, of limited perspective, to one of joy. So how does that happen? How does the presence of God take us from a place of pain and grief to joy? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that he beat death. Because <laughs> I think we're afraid of death, because death is something we can't control. It's, it's actually a thing, I, I believe, that causes the most grief in our world. Hey, there's that phrase, right, that everybody has got to go through two things they can't change. It's the death and taxes thing. But even this year, taxes seem more subjective than objective. They've been pushed out, and who knows? So taxes are less daunting, but death still remains. Death is, def- is the defining work of life. But when Jesus came through, what he did, what Jesus did, was he said, if you follow me, you're no longer defined by death because I wasn't. Because I beat it and now I'm actually living. And with the presence of God, we remember that as followers of Jesus, we are not defined by death either. So death doesn't have the final word. Christ conquered it and ensured that one day death will even die itself. And that brings joy. 
And when we remember that the presence of God leads us to the life that God promised that can't even be thwarted by death, it's an amazing feat that gives us an eternal perspective that thwarts any temporal grief that we might be feeling or having. Warren Wiersbe says, if Jesus Christ can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. Jesus took down death. And even in the middle of the darkest grief we have, that gives us joy as we encounter the very alive presence of God. That's why in a lot of funerals, uh, you'll see this one verse quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 55, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying uh, that's written will come to pass, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? As followers of Christ, we, we don't celebrate death because it's still hard and it still hurts, but it doesn't define us because we live in the presence of God. And just knowing that fact resets our perspective that isn't defined by pain and brings immense joy. I think one of the better places I've seen that in the last year that I can remember was... Um, there's a pastor in Dallas, and he's kind of like a pastor that all pastors look up to, at least I think. I think he's one of the best preachers just in the world. This guy named Tony Evans. I remember studying him and actually listening to him when I was doing the seminary Bible college thing, and I thought, man, this guy's good. And then I, I forgot how good he was. And like a year and a half ago, I went with one of my friends. He was graduating from DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, and, and Tony Evans was the keynote speaker. And he taught a passage that I've taught 17 times before, and he did it so, so much better. And <laughs> I remembered how good this guy was. So his son actually got up and did part of the eulogy. Um, and man, it runs in the family. I'm going to quote to you some of what he said in the eulogy, because I just think it's really good. And, and, it, and it kind of shows us the redefining work of the perspective that we see through the life of Christ, not defined by the pain of our grief. And so his son Jonathan got up and just said, I've been wrestling with God. He said, I've been wrestling with God and asking, where are you? He said, and I quote, when I was wrestling with God, God answered. He said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory. Because just because I didn't answer your prayer the way, your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. He said, and I love this quote, because victory was already given to your mom. There was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to God because of what he's already done for you. The two answers to your prayer are yes and yes because victory belongs to Jesus. He said, I know it was hard for you to sit there and watch your mom die, but don't let that belittle the fact of how hard it was for God to watch his son die so that my mom could live. There are always two answers to your questions, yes and yes, because of my grace being sufficient. It's a beautiful testament to the perspective that a risen Christ brings to our present. Even in the dark moments, the dark painful grief moments of the soul. And so Mary sees Jesus 
and she doesn't recognize him. She hears Jesus and she remembers and her perspective changes in an instant and she falls at the feet of Jesus. And the next phrase is really weird if you just read it outside of context. So Mary is overwhelmed with joy and her perspective shifts in a moment. And how does Jesus respond? Look at the next verse. Do not touch me. That seems really uncaring and cold in that moment, but you got to understand the context of it. So Mary sees Jesus, and if you're a follower of a rabbi, if you're a disciple, your natural position was at their feet. You grabbed their feet, you hugged their feet, you kissed their feet. It was a position of submission and followingness. And so Mary turns and she latches on to Jesus, like, in a way that says, I'm never, ever, ever letting you go again. You will not leave my sight kind of sort of way. Now, the weekend before the coronavirus lockdown started, the middle of March, my wife and I took a trip to Austin because we had it planned and had a, couple, had a week or so off. And um, man, it was three-ish days, I think, two nights, three days. And so that's a long time for us to be away from our kid. We don't take a ton of trips away from her for more than a, a day or two. And we're driving back, and I remember, I went to my parents to pick my kid up, and I remember the moment when we walked back inside. And so we walked back inside, and my daughter yells, Dada, really loudly. And, and look, here's why I want to remember that, because her mom was standing right next to me, and she chose me. It's one of the few wins I have standing next to my wife with my daughter, all right? So I'm going to celebrate that early and often. She chose me, she yelled Dada, and she sprinted toward me, right? It was great, and it was beautiful, and you always have that thing in the back of your head, like, has my kid forgotten me at, you know, 15 months when I leave? But what was really sweet was for like the next probably three to four minutes, my wife and I kind of knelt down and we were probably four feet apart. And she just went back and forth to each one of us and just hugged us. And then she'd run to me and she'd hug me and not let go. And then she'd see my wife and she'd rug my, run to my wife and hug her and not let go. And she just kept going back and forth for a few minutes, just in this way saying, we're not going anywhere. I'm so glad you're back. I will not let you leave again. That's what Mary was doing. And so Jesus says, don't touch me. And he doesn't mean it in a cold way. What he says next is better. He said, I'm, I'm sending you somewhere to go and proclaim the fact that I'm risen. And what I love about that phrase is it does two things. One, it shows us that, that the presence of God gives us purpose and it did for Mary. Uh, but, but two, Jesus was going to leave again. If you follow the Bible story, he was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, which is where he is now. He was going to go away again. And, and, and we have this picture in to kind of the moments that we have now of, of Jesus and the power of the presence of God going with us and, and being with us, but it's not fully realized yet. It's this moment when Jesus says, you're going to get glimpses of my kingdom, but it's not fully actualized yet. That's why we have to choose to live into the presence of God every day so that he can turn our grief into joy. It's a moment when he says, you got to get up and go because we still have work to do as followers of Christ. And here's why I think that's important, because this isn't a sermon that says you shouldn't grieve because God is alive. We live in a place where grief is still real. We live in a broken world where grief doesn't go away. It still hurts. When you lose people, when you're mourning things, when you lose jobs, when you can't celebrate a graduation, when you're in this place of mourning and grieving, because we've loved things, we have scars of that love. And it doesn't go away. And so what Jesus does in the middle of our grief is he meets us in those moments. He reminds us of his perspective. He says, get on with the work that's the purpose of God, bringing the presence of God into the world around me, which is what he did with Mary. And he says... 
to her. He says to her in a really beautiful way, I have a job for you to do, but remember that my presence goes with you. It's this beautiful moment when he reminds us of what's to come yet. Of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and we're only in the presence of God all the time. Kierkegaard's a philosopher that we talk about, we have the last couple weeks, and he says it's funny because we have to live life forward, but it only makes sense backwards. And he just talks about the fact that we keep pressing forward, but really when you look back is when life makes sense. Mary at this point is putting all the pieces together of all the things Jesus said, realizing that he made sense in the end realizing that all the things he said about resurrection were actually true. She's looking back and realizing what she saw to be true in the moment that she missed. And so at the end of the Bible, we see in Revelation, in chapter 21, and God's talking about what's going to come when the presence of God fully envelops all of creation again. And he says there won't be tears and there won't be crying because I'm in control again. And we see that ultimately what the full presence of God is going to do and it's going to turn our grief into joy. Because that's what it does. That's what we saw in Mary. That's what we hope for as the church in these moments of mourning now. That's what we proclaim. That the presence of God takes our grief and turns it into joy. May we be a community that proclaims that message. As Jesus charged Mary, might we go and tell others that the presence of our God gives us a different and better and joyful perspective even in the middle of grief. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful just for who you are. <laughs> I'm thankful that you constantly challenge our perspective when we're in the middle of painful situations. I'm thankful that through you we can actually live and that we're promised life and that we're not defined by death. I'm thankful that Jesus meets us in the middle of our pain. That's just grace. I pray that we're people that proclaim the message of Jesus to the people of the world that need it, all of us that we can be hope carriers, that we can be presence um, people that show others what the presence of God does in our present moments. Might we spread the joy of Jesus in the middle of this global crisis. So be with us, go before us, and might we remember and lean into the presence of God in the middle of our pain and be reminded of the joy that Jesus brings. And I pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today, guys. If you keep scrolling down on the page, you're going to find a discussion element, a panel discussion about today's sermon because we believe that we grow and we have discussions about our faith together. And as always, if you have questions about this message or any other teaching, send your questions into sermonquestions at crossroadsbible.org. We'll deal with those probably in a Facebook live session or in another kind of way, a blog or a video. It depends on, on how many we get. But send those in. We love talking to you guys and with you guys. And love you guys. Miss everybody. Can't wait to be in the same room with you again. But until then, have joy in Jesus, because he's alive.